out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Yes, indeed, we are, Jim. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show once again, bringing you the finest in indie pop and much, much more. This week, as you know, we love a special guest. It is the turn of Jim Jones, one-time member of the Hypnotics and also lots of other bands as well, including the Jim Jones Review and also Jim Jones and The Righteous Mind. So, before we have that chat... And it's quality chat all the way down the line. I think we'll all play some music to get the party rolling. And then, yes, the interview. But this is going to be the Hypnotics and Shakedown.
Funky, sleazy, it's just rock and roll. Anyway, that was The Hypnotics with a track titled Shakedown. This is David Esau. This is The C86 Show. Towards the end of the show, I will give you our contact details and do the general admin. But uh, frankly, it's a bit boring. So um, I think we'll do the interview. This is it. This is me in conversation with Jim Jones. And after a little bit of chat about this and that and all the other, um, we began with that important question. And that was to talk about... The early years of the hypnotics, and this is it. Take it away, Jim. Um, as you said, you know, just missed punk, and I remember a feeling of, you know, sort of like the, you know, the mid to, to late eighties, a feeling like I of coming of age, you know, like now this is my world kind of thing, uh, and I was deeply disappointed in chart music. You know, I sort of was very jealous of, you know older generations who would have t-rex on top of the pops you know and uh, i was kind of pretty disgusted it's like what have we got like flock of seagulls and duran duran and 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 spandau ballet you know and i was and i just thought this is awful it's like what a jip you know we've been totally jipped on this you know you guys who were you know sort of young adults of the 70s got such a much better deal than we did and so, of course, you turn to alternative music as a, as a, as a sort of, um, you know, for something that's a bit more inspiring. Yes, well, absolutely, and, because uh, because that period was quite interesting because the early eighties, as as you said, there was the Duran Duran, but you also had, you had two different camps, didn't you? You had that kind of that Trevor Horn kind of production sound, and then on the other side, you had the sort of these kind of weird characters that, um, like, I suppose, see Morrissey and people like the Smiths and and everything yeah. but the girl, uh, who were quite clearly. Yeah. I would have considered them alternative, you know, like that. That would have been like indie or alternative even though they were like major, you know, stars, you know, that, that was against the grain as far as I could see, you know, and, and I was never a huge fan of Morrissey. I do, I definitely, um, admire him as an artist on a lot of levels, but he went like a lot of friends of mine had their records. So back in those days, you probably remember David, when you went to someone's house, you usually had a, a pile of records with you. Yes. You know, I mean, we always do. We always had like sort of several LPs under your arm and, you know, and that's, you went and you had, you had a little smoke or a bit whatever, you know, and you'd sit around listening records, discussing stuff. And, and uh, yeah, look, many of my friends had uh, Smith's stuff, the, um, the, you know, the King and Air. What, what's that song called? I'm oh, the, yes. Um, you, I am, I am yeah. the King. I, the I quite air. like, yeah. Yeah, I quite like that one. Uh, and there was a few, few of the, songs that I like but on the whole it's just a little bit jangly for me yes well, it was, um, it was uh, but I, I liked it I found out that he was like was he the chairman of the New York Dolls fan club or something like that yes, and so that it. was immediately great for me yeah sort of for, it's like oh yeah he's that, that makes makes him he's, he's uh he went up, went up a few notches on the cool meter you know <laughs> for me like because yeah. it was quite interesting that period because during that period um that phase as well i mean we had things on channel four we had the tube as well didn't we and and also there was the sort of the world of goth was appearing um and it couldn't yeah. be stopped so you had the like the early you know people like the you know susan the banshees and then the sort of cult the cure the mission and then you know yeah. alien sex fiends so obviously those sort of yeah bands. the next wave i was just about to say yeah yeah that second wave of uh of bands that came after that in the back cave which was um which was a weird thing for me because um 
you would hear you would hear the birthday party and the cramps. Yes. Uh, who who I for me <laughs> and my daughter's on the scene. Joe's, I'm just talking to someone on the phone. Do do you want to No yeah, go on, cut that cut that for me and then can you take it to mummy? There you go. <laughs> Excellent. She's right on the scene. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. She's us, sorry. Um, yeah, we were just talking about the goth thing. Yeah, like, the, like for instance, like the birthday party and the cramps. Um, I'm sure there's a few other examples were, were, were groups that fit into my idea of like kind of rock and roll. And, uh, but they were kind of um, embraced by the goth scene, weren't they? Like very much like it's part of that early burgeoning kind of goth aesthetic, um, places like the Batcave. Yes. Uh, Bauhaus, obviously, I kind of, I remember um, me and Ray listened to Bauhaus a fair bit, particularly the first album, and like that. And I could see, and, and in fact, The Cure as well, and, and could see that was obviously what I would call goth music, you know, whereas The Cramps, for instance, and, and The Birthday Party was something else, you know. This was kind of like sort of, uh, had a more kind of rock and roll you know, sort of jagged, driven kind of, uh, you know, I can't think of the right adjective. No. But, uh, but I think with a lot of those, but a lot of those bands, I think, because I did an interview with Kevin Haskins, who was the drummer with Bauhaus a couple of weeks ago, and I, I think it's oh, probably right. oh, yeah. a lot to do with who they were listening to and growing up to, really, because I think the cramps definitely yeah. sort of veered towards more garage sound, whereas talking to Kevin from the from Bauhaus, I mean, they were slightly driven by their sort of lack of uh, ability to play that much, you know, that many other styles, and I think they just kind of right, yeah. had sort of um, were obviously huge David Bowie fans, and I think that's where they... Yeah, Bowie and t all that glam thing you could hear coming through in the music, but with a, with that sort of, with a darker, you know, with a Bella Lugosi influence, yes, this and is true. and that and that sort of you know kind of, I mean, at the time, it, it's I think even quite young sort of and doing music myself, I could see that's like, well, it's just like a little bit pretentious, <laughs> you know, like going like you know, but kind of liked it at the same time. It was that weird thing, you know. I, I guess you could say, you know, if you if you wanted to be uncharitable, you could say David Bowie is a bit pretentious sometimes. But I love, you know, pretty much everything he he did, you know, for, well from Hunky Dory onwards. And anyway, like Manny sold the uh, world and, that, and into that. But um, yes, but yeah, yeah. But, but you know, did it take a while to get your? Did it take a while to get your sound? You know, because most people, you know, yeah. like talking to Fast Eddie yeah. from Motorhead, it, it, you know, he said it it was quite a long period before they they made something that was kind of worth listening to. Up to then, it was all a bit sort yeah. of until it gelled cohesively into the into what became the Motorhead that everyone knew. Yes, yeah, and that, and they hit on the hit on the chemistry is like ah, now we've got something. Yeah, so did it? Uh, yeah, no, it, it did, it did, and we went through various things myself and Ray the guitar player were friends since school and we yeah we went through and again as well as like your sound changing because you're sort of settling on what you want to do you're kind of learning how to play as well so that's a bit of a factor you know like when you when you first pick up a guitar you can't always go straight to playing like mc5 songs you know or or all that kind of stuff you know so you you kind of 
you do what you can basic thing i mean we were lucky that we were surrounded by um uh, a good friend of ours bruce jones who's like our age um lived lived in the area where we lived and and he was a you know a guitar player pretty good one actually better than a, better than me or ray at the time and uh but he had an older sister and her and her boyfriend and their mates were that generation that you know did go and see punk you know they saw the sex pistols play or johnny thunders and the heartbreakers or these you know various other punk bands and stuff like that and uh they they were big music fans too like particularly um the the guy who was bruce's older sister's boyfriend so not to get too complicated and soap opera about it but um he was an important both of them were important almost like sort of surrogate parents of of music in a way because they he was a massive blues fan you know and he had loads of like old i mean all this it's such a different world now because you go on spotify or the internet or something everything's there for you but in those days you had to kind of dig around and you had to know where to go and who to talk to to track down certain kinds of music but he had a huge record collection of old you know blues music all all the obvious stuff all the chess stuff but uh rare stuff as well you know and even in those days um you know someone like robert johnson was like you when you when you heard it it was like a treat because you you couldn't usually find it it was like oh this is that guy who's supposedly invented blues guitar playing or something you know and it was like you'd heard about it but you'd never heard the music and uh or you'd only read about, you know, people in the Rolling Stones talking about it or something like that, and then suddenly you heard it. So we were really lucky in that respect. So he, this guy, his name was Colton, he had a load of blue stuff, and he, he was a big Rolling Stones aficionado, so he had all the bootlegs and all this, you know, stuff, and even a video of Cocksucker Blues, which was unheard of, you know, back then. Yes. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, way, way was like a, you know, like a proper bootlegged copy of like the like watching through snow you know like really a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy but nonetheless it was like wow this is that film that's like no one's ever heard so he had all that stuff and then um bruce's older sister uh ali she had all the glam stuff and all the david bowie and um you know and new york dolls and um who else did did she listen to uh, a lot? I suppose Lou uh, Reed and people like that as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that, that whole side of things, you know. So that was uh, that was like a sort of a, a like going to a library, you know, yes. or something. You, you go around to their house, and uh, when they had a kid, uh, me and Ray would babysit for them when they wanted to go out. And then when you, it was just like getting the keys to the library, you know, you could just sort of go through pick out stuff and play it and so that was uh that was like really lucky because we grew up in a, a village that was fairly you know i think it's safe to say it was fairly sort of in in the boonies you know there wasn't it wasn't like we were near 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 any docklands where stuff would come in or any big sort of metropolitan area where stuff was going so you know you did feel like you're kind of trapped out in the countryside or something uh and a lot of our friends, you know, we had some good friends, but it was only really me and Ray that had this fervor for, uh, you know, what we what we had decided was like the cooler side of rock and roll, you know. Um, and when I say rock and roll, I'm just talking about, you know, any music that really moves you and makes you feel like, yes, this is the stuff, you know, like when you first hear, you know, when you first hear 
a Lou Reed song or the Velvet Underground or the Cramps or something, and you suddenly, you know, a light goes on inside your head, and you're like, this, this is it, you know. I mean, I can I can remember the first time hearing the New York Dolls album, you know, personality personality crisis, the first song on there. And it was like definitely a sense of like a light switching on, you know, this isn't like mum and dad's records, this is something else, you know, it's kind of, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's absolutely. a kind of a, it's like an awakening moment, you know, and, uh, and um, getting back to your question, you know, we sort of, um, we play, we, we had guitars. I played guitar sort of a long time before Ray, funny enough. Uh, and it, but it, and, there was a time where we both played guitars um, in bands, but we kind of leaned towards, there was suddenly this thing of like, we wanted the simplicity of like, you know, you've got a drummer, a bass player, a guitarist and a singer, you know, and and it's like, you know, like the Sex Pistols or something or many other bands. And it's, and, and I, I was just in, in, the, you know, and of the mind of the times like, I'm feeling, I think I'll, I'll just go for the singing. And uh, Ray was like, yeah, I really want to get into the guitar side of things. And um, so that was like a conscious change. And we were, we were still very much kind of like, I think we discovered, you know, those um, Nuggets and Pebbles albums that yes. um, Lenny Kay had put out. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, our sound was kind of like quite, quite garagey. Uh, and then the whole glam thing, particularly Johnny Thunders was a big, uh, you know, sort of influence on us. We we thought it was like, you know, the Messiah yes. of some kind. And I, as Ray said, like, obviously not the best role model in the world <laughs> no. in, in terms of lifestyles. But, um, yeah, I, we, we would, we'd all go to parties. And like I said, you know, everyone always brought LPs with them. And we'd always want to want, want to be listening to you know the Cramps or the New York Dolls or Johnny Thunders this and that. And there was a guy at this party one time who was like, "I've got I've got Kick Out of Jams, the MC5 album," and we were like, oh, "No, no, no, we want to put the Heartbreakers on again or something." And in the end, it was like after the third time, it's like, "Come on, you've had that all night. We're having that." And he put, and he put it on, and again, it was like uh, you know a light bulb moment and awakening of like what the fuck is this you know like uh kick out the jams you know never heard that stuff before being being a guitar player and being in a band or you know sort of it was just suddenly like whoa you know this is it and it really was that was that was uh uh breakfast lunch and dinner for us for for for, for a good couple of years you know like to just mc5 you know we would eat sleep drink dream the mc5 you know that was I can't stress strongly enough what a what an influence and what a turning point it was for us. But at a certain point, I, I guess we we all the all the things that we had been inspired by, you know, the blues and the and the glam rock and the and the you know the cooler side of punk, the proto punk, if you will. Do you know that book, Please Kill Me, the yes. um, the Legs McNeil one? I mean that that's the side of punk I guess that we gravitated towards which is mostly American <clears throat> and it was more of a had a connection to art rock in some way if you could call the Ramones art rock I don't think you can but if you know what I mean it had, there's a certain aesthetic and a certain it came from a lineage you know it was it was uh it was that you know it came from the Stooges and the MC5 and things like that you know yes. and the Velvet Underground it didn't it was- come from 
hearing you know x-ray specs or for the first time or something like that if if you if you can get my distinction or whatever yeah um, definitely it was it was more about a connection that went back to the blues you know sure. as opposed to something that was uh a sort of a you know english art school aesthetic or something like that you know so, um what is interesting a bit, uh, more, more old-fashioned i suppose you could say you know in some ways but sorry sorry Dave, you're trying no to I, was, I was just going to say it was quite interesting because kind of um, the one thing that sort of knocked out most of those indie bands which were you know the jingly jangly was kind of there was the sort of the rave scene and also the grunge scene from seattle and i i remember <coughs> I, I sort of um i know that nirvana were touring with tad on their um sub pop kind of phase yeah. when they did those compilations Sub Pop 100 and then Sub Pop 200 which John Peel played a lot and I, yeah. I sort of managed to interview Kurt Cobain when they were at the Art Centre supporting Tad and um, wow. he mentioned a lot about these early blues records that people like Lead Belly and various other people which yeah. I, I would have to listen to the tape now but he again went back right to those kind of early blues stuff and um, it yeah. was kind of interesting you mentioned that because also you also sort of tapped into that grunge scene as well, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, um, I guess like sort of uh, the best story I can think of about that was we went to see Sonic Youth playing at the Kilburn Ballroom when it was still there. Was that and when they did um, Teenage? They did the Touch Me, I'm Sick kind yes. of single with um, with with Mud Honey. Yeah. And we didn't know much about Mud Honey, but um, Sonic Youth were kind of blazing the trail for, you know, American alternative music and that kind of, you know, post no wave, you know, guitar, just noises on the guitar instead of chords and things like that, you know, and doing it, doing it with, you know, quite, quite a degree of uh, savoir faire, you know, like they had like a real kind of great style, you know, to what they were doing. Again, it's like, you know, art connection and, and, and they're quite intellectual actually, aren't they? You know, Sonic Youth. Yes. I mean, um, they the, came first of all, does, does, does lectures on white noise, you know, <laughs> it's like, and so it's kind of like, wow, it's sort of, it's like real like noise, but it's quite kind of highbrow at the same time. There's that, that weird sort of intellectual side to it. Um, but, you know, when it boils down to it, it's kind of, you know, there's plenty of blood and guts rock and roll in it. But anyway, we went to see Sonic Youth as a band. As you as you did, you know that kind of thing you do when you're younger and you're a band. You all go out together, don't you? And you go to different clubs and gigs and stuff. And uh, we we uh, went in there, and the and the opening band was Mud Honey. And they came on, and we were instantly like, "This is fantastic!" You know, the first time you see a band like that, uh, and we're always impressed that American bands seem to, you know, really throw themselves around a lot more than English bands. They were at that time, especially, you know, like I think England even had a term shoegazing, which was <laughs> yes. like a, you know, it was a, became a genre almost, you know, it's like sort of a introspective kind of, you know, uh, soundscape bands. But this, this is like, sort of like the opposite. And it was kind of like a, like so refreshing to see like, you know, hair flying and guitars up in the air and this like glorious sort of rock and roll noise, you know, that was like very much Blue Cheer, who are a band that we'd discovered recently, again, another American band. And uh, so, we, so we were all, you know, when they finished and we were waiting for Sonic Youth to come on, we were all kind of in a huddle, excitedly talking about like, oh, that was, you know, so great. And Mark Arm, 
came walking over and he's like, ah, found you. Someone said they saw you here. He said, I, I got this single. I got your single. I bought it in like a little junk store in New York. Would you sign it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, we were, and we were like, oh, wow. And he's like, yeah, it's great. It's a great single. And we were like, oh, that's fantastic. And um, so we kind of struck up a kind of a, a friendship slash camaraderie a little bit with him. And I think it was through conversations and some of that connection that we went back to our record label, Beggar's Banquet, and talked to them. And uh, they, were, they were talking about us touring in America. And uh, I guess they got in touch with Sub Pop. And um, they, did the, they did a deal that our first release that came out in America was on Sub Pop Records. And they made up an album which was... One side was uh, a sort of a, a, a live uh, mini album that we had done, and the other side was the singles that we'd done up until that point. And Sub Pop put it out as an album, and we and we did our first tour of America on Sub Pop with Tad, uh, who you mentioned before, yes. which was like a fantastic experience. Uh, and um, yeah, so we kind of I, I remember being in in. Uh, Seattle and there was like a buzz around what we were doing you know we played this one venue and it was like it's great you know crowd surfing craziness like even at one point like the drummer was playing in a, in a carving knife landed on his snare drum you know <laughs> like so it's like what you know there were bodies flying everywhere it was like yeah it was a, it was a riot you know it's like it was a fantastic experience yes because and, uh, because the one thing I've noticed doing all these interviews is that most bands have a kind of five-year lifespan. You know, they get together, they make a bit of a sound, John Peel would play them, they do a session, then the album, then they do the tour, which sometimes went well. If they ever did America, that seemed to finish them off, and the second album was when things really started getting quite tricky. So how did it develop with yeah. your, you know, those early years with that, with that particular outfit? Yeah, uh, um, I'm not quite sure what the question you're asking. Well, but, I just um, wondered how did you all, how did your narrative sort of run? Because obviously you were just talking about America, yeah. which because everybody I spoke yeah, to yeah. always say, "God, we did America," and then it was like, and they have that kind of yeah. you, can, you can almost hear the silence and that emotional flashback. Yeah. It's like then we came back, yeah. you know, we we came back kind of disturbed. Yeah. So how did you, you know, because yeah. <laughs> yeah, and 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 it was well, almost like it was almost like, like going to Nam, like, you know. <laughs> Yeah, even bands like T-Rex and Slade, that happened to them as well, didn't it? It kind of finished off their careers. They were like, well, do you want to be huge in the States? And they go out there and, you know, they go, no, the States is huge. We're quite small, <laughs> actually, yeah. And, uh, Mommy said, my mouth keeps your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not uh, kids, eh? Mm -hmm. So, um, the, the second album for us, yeah, things were starting to pick up in America, actually, but then we had the bad luck of having a terrible car accident. We, um, in Minneapolis, we'd done a show at Prince's Club called the, um, Second Avenue or something like that. It was cool, I can't remember. Um, First Entry, I think it's called. And, uh, we, um, we, we after the show it went really well and everyone wanted to grab something to eat there was nothing open so we drove out onto the freeway found a diner 
And then when we came back in, we were a couple of blocks from the hotel and a drunk driver ran through a red light and smashed into the side of our van. And um, on the side he smashed in, the drummer was sitting there and, and he basically had to go to intensive care. He had His pelvis was snapped in half and he had spinal fractures and broken ribs. And, you know, the rest of us had cuts and grazes, but not too bad. But he was in a really bad way, you know. So it basically, uh, you know, that put, put an end to that tour completely and took the, took the wind out of ourselves because we were ascending quite nicely, you know, um, into into kind of a rock thing, you know. And uh, but it that that was the end of that was the end of that. And um, uh, you know, I'd said to our manager, "Look, let's get back to London, uh, get some press together. We'll we'll cancel the show because we were supposed to go back to an English tour straight into it from America, and uh, so cancel the shows." Uh, maybe we'll get together with our friend Rat Scabies, who's a friend of ours at the time, who'd kind of taken us under his wing. Rehearse with him and we'd do the London show and as a, as a sort of a, you know, as a kind of like, look, we, we'll get this together and put the show on and put some press around it. But uh, our manager at the time, who, who we pretty much fell out with completely after that episode, he just got brought us back and put us straight out on the British tour with no rehearsals, with he asked if Rat Scabies would do it. He said yes. And he just put us straight on the road uh, with no rehearsals. And, and it was a pretty miserable tour. You know, I, I mean, I think that really done us in because the songs didn't sound right because we hadn't rehearsed. And we were kind of still a bit shaken and upset about our drummer, Phil, who was still back in America, you know, uh, having having all kinds of surgery. And... Uh, you know, when we got to the end of it, we played the London show, which was at the Yulu, and um, everyone just smashed everything up, you know, set guitars on fire, smashed up, and like, our bass player smashed his bass, even. And then he went out and got his spare bass and smashed that as well. And I was like, you did both of them, Will? He's like, yeah, I want to make sure we're not going to France, because we were supposed to go to France straight after that and do some European dates, you know? And uh, we, ba- it was basically, I think, our expression of, like, you know, we need to stop for a minute, you know, <laughs> kind of wait for our drummer to get better and figure out what we're going to do. And uh, so that's how that went, the second album thing. But then the third album, <clears throat> our drummer came back and um, it kind of changed the sound a lot. You know, the sound got a little bit more introspective, might be the word, you know, reflective. And it became a bit, you know, there was a little bit more, there was a melancholy edge to it. I suppose for what we've been through is a bit darker, you know. It wasn't it wasn't so much like ramalama rock and roll this and that. It was a bit more kind of you know uh, shadows and darkness and you know we we were very much at the time in, inspired by things like the Big Star Third Sister Lovers album, Alex Chilton and uh, other kind of swampy stuff, Doctor John, things like that, you know stuff that was a bit kind of more uh you know darker sort of dreamy or voodoo-y or you know every, every it seemed like everything on that kind of trip had, you know that's where everyone had you know reclined to in their minds into this sort of darker place and um 
And then, <clears throat> shall I keep going on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So where it went from there. <laughs> so that that album came out, and then we were getting into this mode, and then all of a sudden, we someone said to me like, "Oh, there's a bit in one of these rock magazines." Chris Robinson from the Black Crows is saying he really loves your band, and you know they asked him who he would like to to tour with, and and he said, "Oh, you know, he really loves Perry Farrell and." Um, and uh, Jane's Addiction and this English band, The Hypnotics. And we was got sort of swept along into that. And uh, we ended up touring with their, their first tour of England. Uh, I think a lot of major labels were trying to get their, you know, sort of fledgling rock bands to play with the Black Crows because they had a huge uh, profile at the time. You know, I think their first album was like triple platinum or something like that. It was massive. And... Um, uh, but they they gave us the tour and they they even paid us you know like all these other bands were offering buy-ons and stuff like that but we were kind of you know taken under that wing even though they were younger than us they were in a in a much stronger position and they kind of took us under their wing in that way and uh, so it sort of that kind of snapped us out of that kind of dark voyage if you will you know and sort of back into like a more kind of you know southern rocking kind of thing you know you couldn't help but be influenced by that playing with them every night to these big you know playing big venues that were sold out with the crowd going berserk and they were a great band you know i mean you go and see them play now and it's a little bit more ponderous you know they i think they got very into that whole grateful dead thing of like jamming for 12 hours on one riff you know or something but um back in those days when they were doing it was more like singles yeah they were incredible they were incredibly they were explosive they could all play really well they were all you know at the height of their powers i think you know from in from my point of view anyway and it was um difficult not to be sort of inspired and swept swept along with that and uh the whole thing culminated in the singer chris robinson offering to it's like, you should let me produce an album for you. And though he was a big fan of our previous album, Come Down Heavy, <clears throat> the one that we'd done uh, when we had the crash. You know, it was that album we were touring there um, in America. And um, so we went out to L.A., had a very sort of, uh, you know, hanging out with those guys. And they would be going to, you know, fancy restaurants and sort of uh, cool parties that were on, you know, where they would, book a whole floor of a hotel and you'd get like Cher and Johnny Depp and people like that wondering about, you know, Michael Stipe, you know, those, <laughs> these kind of like high end, you know, yes. I mean, our drummer, our drummer said he remembers sitting there and Johnny Depp said, Hey Phil, my name's Johnny. Can I get you a drink? <laughs> and he said, uh, maybe, maybe some bourbon. And he said, give me a minute. And he came back and just gave him a bottle of Jack Daniels, you know, <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> you know? Uh, which is like quite different than what we've been used to. And um, so we, we recorded the album out there and we had high hopes for that, but um, bad luck struck again. And just about the time it was due to come out, uh, um, Ameri Death America had be become American recordings, Rick Rubin's American label. And uh, they went into this huge litigation, I think with Polygram or someone like that, or maybe a couple of labels that were there the European distributors and they just they just sort of took all the funding out of it. If you weren't Danzig or the Black Crows or one of their big, you know, or Johnny Cash or something, they just pulled all the funding away and uh, we went on t tour, you know, we had everything lined up 
expecting the album to come out and a, and a bit of a press, you know, promo thing to go with it. And you know, and and they took all the they, they were just look, we're we're going to put the the record out, but there'll be no tour support, tour support, there'll be no press, there'll be no, you know, you can still do the tour if you want, but you know, um, we we're we're deep into this legal litigation thing going on at the moment, and all our all our resources are, are going towards that. And so it was. It was really like having the the rug pulled out from under you, you know. And we did. Uh, and, to, and to make matters worse, they we were supposed to use. They had a Winnebago, you know, that belonged to the label. Yes. Like a big motorhome kind of touring vehicle, and um, the the crew guys that, that picked up from the west coast to drive it across America. We were starting on the east coast. Um, it broke down halfway, and uh, they couldn't get it fixed. And uh, we, no, no one knew what to do in terms of a touring vehicle, and in, in the end, they went to an auction and they, they bought like an old yellow school bus, <laughs> you know, like the one on. Have you seen Dirty Harry? You know, where yes. the kids are on the yellow school bus, like one of those, you know. And uh, and and this was August, I think, and uh, this, I can't remember what the year was. So like early nineties, ninety one or something like that, or nineteen ninety one. And uh, it was a heat wave, and there was no air conditioning. And we went straight from New York right down into Carolina, down into the south. You know, <laughs> it, was just, it was just unbelievable, you know, just so hot. And then we, and it, it seemed like we went along the south of the country all the way along. We were going to Texas, New Mexico, and places like that on this yellow tour bus, yellow school bus, you know, with like, hard wooden seats that weren't comfortable at all. And uh, it was just like a mad, it was very, it was quite a Jack Kerouac sort of episode. You know? Yes, this is... Uh... You know, one, one, one night you'd be, you know, sort of in sweltering heat of South Carolina, just sleeping. You, I mean, we'd, I think we slept on the bus a couple of nights and with, you know, with the crickets going and the, and the Spanish moss in the trees and, you know, outside. And then, and then you know, the next minute we're in Kansas with like full-on hurricanes going and lightning, you know. It was almost like one of those ridiculous old black-and-white movies where lightning goes every second, you know. It's like, this is, is this real? You know. <laughs> uh, but it, it was, uh, you know, it was quite, quite a trip. <laughs> um, and yeah. I, I guess when we came back from that, um, you know, bands like Oasis were in full flight and it was very much the Britpop kind of thing. And there just wasn't really a place for us, I think, in the, in the, in the landscape in terms of uh, what the promoters wanted, the kind of bands they wanted to put on or anything like that. And it just sort of started grinding to a halt, you know. And in the end, uh, there was, uh, I think it was 1998 by the end of it, we kind of we soldiered, soldiered on because it's... We'd come from school, you know, into this band, so we didn't really know anything else. It was just, yeah, just keep playing. Um, it wasn't like we had day jobs to go back to or anything. So uh, we just soldiered on, but then I remember 1998, we, we got offered some dates, and uh, some of the guys in the band were going, oh, the World Cup's on TV, I don't really want to drive up to Scotland to do it. And uh, at, that, at that time, I was just like, okay, you know, if... If you if you prioritise that over that, I mean, I, I think I think the band had finished, but no one knew it yet, or no one knew how to say it or something. But for me, it was like, okay, if we're not going to take good 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 concert offers, 
then uh, we might as well call it a day. <clears throat> and I kind of said, okay, I'm done, you know, and that was that. Was that. Yes, God, that was quite dramatic, wasn't it? I think that bus journey, though, because yeah. I have driven around a lot of those kind of states like uh, New Mexico and... Um, yeah. Yes, that, that was kind of, you know, really hot. Sweltering. Sweltering, yeah. and you do need air conditioning, otherwise you're going to die, yeah. basically. But um, yeah. so so <laughs> what would you kind of say to your 18-year-old self then, you know, because you've obviously got a huge amount of experience from all this. Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to look at it that way because I was in the middle of it, you know, it's hard to sort of stand outside and be objective. For me, it was just my life. That was me growing up, you know. So, you know, I, all the lessons that I need to, to learn from that, I have, you know. I mean, I kind of, you know, in those days, it was it kind of, you know, I was a bit, had a different way of romanticizing the whole rock and roll myth, you know, and feeling like you wanted to be part of it and reinvent yourself into it. And, you know, when, when you when you go through it and come out the other side, you you kind of understand, you know, you already were it before you went into it, you know, you thought you were looking for something and it was, you know, it was already in your heart, you know, and because that's the bit that counts. It's like the, your your passion for the music, really, you know, that's what it boils down to. You can take everything else away and it, and it doesn't matter, you know, those things are expendable, you know, but your your passion for it is that that's the spark, you know, that's the, that's the bit. That, that matters so everything else is really just aesthetic you know and sort of and fairly you know fairly unimportant uh i think the only thing that's important is that spark and the way you you know and the, your energy to express it uh and so that's kind of what i know now <laughs> which isn't that much but it's important you know i mean it's like it doesn't sound like much but that's that's uh that's the good stuff. That's that's what it boils down to, you know. If you want to break it down into like some kind of universal truth, but it's uh, that's where I am now. Yeah, I mean, one the other thing that slightly slips people up slightly, quite a lot, really, is is the, all the publishing and the ownership of the music. Did you manage to sort of navigate that tricky water? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just about. Yeah, we. Um, I mean, in fact, you've reminded me. I need to go and check on some things now because with this reissue stuff that's come out for the hypnotics someone's noticed that a few of the songs have got like completely weird random names against them so you need to get get onto the prs and uh put that straight <clears throat> but um yeah i mean uh the, the hypnotics didn't ever you know get that much radio play or sell that many records you know it's more of i think we were we had like a really um what do you call it loyal fan base you know yes. that, that uh that um that always turned up and you know supported us and it, it, the music was kind of that way really it, it was never sort of like a big you know <clears throat> we didn't get the big white house in the country or anything you know no and, but, uh, and obviously it, it just went back into the music yeah and obviously you still love doing music because you've got your sort of you know Jim Jones review, which which obviously because a lot of people which I've interviewed also have had a huge break and then sort of come back decades later, but you yeah, you, you yeah. rolled on with it quite relentlessly. Yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah, I had a, a a lot more success with Jim Jones review than the Hypnotics ever ever did, uh, and that was like another another whole kind of chapter and adventure of its of its of its own, you know. But um, I mean, you know. Like I said before, I think it's that thing. Like if you've got that spark and the, and the and the 
and the energy and, and you know the motivation to express it that, that's 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 how you do it you know just just uh when when i first left the hypnotic or the band ended or whichever way you want to look at it um i did try and just kind of like give it a break for a bit but after a couple of months i was you know climbing the walls sort of going mad and uh, immediately wanted to get a project going you know it's just in there and has to come out you know <laughs> yeah, as, John, as John Lee Hooker would say indeed wise words from John Lee Hooker and also Jim Jones a big thank you to give me the uh, give me the time for that interview um, talking about life in music from the hypnotics onwards but as I said he's also got a new album coming out or is out this year with the Jim Jones and the Righteous Mind. But before we say goodbye, if a um, bit of admin, we always love that, um, you can contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just go to at C86show. Also, all these shows have been archived, so you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, and also Mixcloud. Anyway, this has been David Eastall. Again, big thank you to Jim Jones for the time for that interview. I'll leave you with a track from Jim Jones and the Righteous Mind. This is Satan's Got... His heart set on you. Have a great week.
Fou. Je...